This is No More Normal. I'm Khalil Ekelona. All over the country, graduation ceremonies are popping off. Celebrations of hard work and achievement bring smiles to graduates and their families. Be it a college degree or a high school diploma, much has been learned. But young people in the last decades have had a lot to study, more than academics. They've had to learn what to do when a person shows up to your school with a gun and starts shooting. And unfortunately, those type of skills could help you anywhere these days, even on Capitol Hill. As the American pandemic of gun violence grows, so do the arguments about what can be done about it. Often those arguments are about the Second Amendment, but do we have the right to bear arms right? Or are we arguing about it wrong? Nomono hits part two of our look at gun violence. We talk with a researcher who asks if mass shootings and other public forms of gun violence are contagious, a gun owner who explains why he's a liberal and supports gun owners' rights, a couple of professors, one about the Second Amendment, and another about guns as a public health issue. And we take a trip out to the shooting range. This is my box of bullets rattling back and forth. It's a very telltale sound for somebody who's been shooting for a long time, or even just somebody who, like, is a movie buff. No More Normal starts now. In the national conversation about guns, we are usually referring to their power to kill when in the hands of someone looking to destroy. But what about responsible gun owners, people who hunt or shoot for sport? I have almost no experience with guns, okay? Nomono executive producer Marisa DeMarco has been shooting them at Target since she was a kid, with adult supervision, of course. She thought, since we're talking about them so much on these episodes, maybe I'd like to gain some first-hand knowledge. And she arranged a trip to the range so I could learn more about shooting from her good friend, Henry Hutchinson. Henry's a responsible and experienced gun owner who likes to ping targets with his firearms, but hates the violence and death they bring every day to our world. The three of us drove out to an outdoor spot outside of Albuquerque, commonly used for shooting practice. Well, I'm just getting everything out. I ended up bringing three different firearms today. 357 Magnum. Okay, that's Dirty Harry, right? Yeah, revolver, okay. yep. This is the important one. So much of America has a gun like this. This is a Browning High Power. It's like a 1911 style pistol. This is ubiquitous, just available everywhere and Every weapons manufacturer makes a different version. It's like a Beretta, kind of? Exactly. The classic 9mm or 45 cop gun. Mm-hmm. Then I brought a uh, shotgun just because I thought I'd introduce you to all the different okay. <laughs> types and get a long arm in there. Okay. Something to bust up your shoulder. So clip goes in, clicks, you pull the slide back, and it's ready to go. When you're holding it, you want to have a really firm grip with your dominant hand, and then place your hand kind of cupping the bottom of the handle, fingers around the other hand, and just squeeze your hands, both of them, kind of into the handle of the gun only ever pointed at the ground or down towards where you're shooting. Okay. I never keep my finger on the trigger. My finger's always away from the trigger until I'm exactly ready to shoot. Whoa. Nice. 
Wow. Um, I hit the coffee cup three times. Yeah, that was good. You did. All right, so I'm, I'm shooting this, and the first time I shot it, I was like, whoa, okay, hold on, okay, you actually shot a gun, okay. <laughs> and everything's good. And then shooting it, strangely, it felt like Duck Hunt from Nintendo, I'm, okay? But with a lot more power. And then I'm like, well, let me see. I'm getting pretty close to this coffee cup. Let me see if I can get it. And I got it, and I got it again, and I got it the third time. Wow, okay. I feel, okay, so I'm not as afraid anymore. The anxiety level has gone down, but the awareness of what I have in my hands is fully present. Yeah. I always want to start with that like tenuous kind of fear or just awareness that what I have in my hand is like this really deadly instrument and then you can go about using it in a responsible way. I can completely see how someone shooting for a while suddenly thinks that they're James Bond. It gives this sense of power. I could see why just how I feel right now. It's been, what, a minute and a half since I shot these four, four or five rounds. How someone would want to find, is this weird, a moment of zen by going to the gun range? Yeah. You know? Yeah. These are interesting feelings yeah. that are coming up for me because, you know, I grew up in the suburbs just outside of Baltimore, familiar with what gun violence can do, lived in cities basically my entire life, very familiar with what gun violence can do. And I see how it gives that zen, but I can also see in a moment of high tension, without clarity, without thought, someone could pull one of these out and make a terrible, terrible mistake. Yeah, especially when you've been training with one, it's like duck hunt. It's yeah. not very hard. Wow, I'm interested to see what the 357 Magnum is like. Yeah, that'll, it's That's like, kick, huh? it really, yeah, shakes your hand. <laughs> This is my box of bullets rattling back and forth. It's a very telltale sound for somebody who's been shooting for a long time, or even just somebody who like is a movie buff. You know, filmmakers who make that type of movie just really love to emphasize the sound of the guns, mm -hmm. the sound of the bullets, the sound of cartridges mm -hmm. tinkling on the ground. Mm -hmm. It's all part of the mysticism of the experience of shooting a gun. Yeah, it really, it really, really gets a hold of people. Buying ammunition in the last 10 years has just become something that you kind of do online now, um, which is strange. I was discussing this with one of the people that worked at the store that I went to get some 9mm ammunition to take you guys out. There was only one kind, it was like the expensive kind, because they informed me, oh yeah, like whenever we get a new shipment, people somehow keep tabs on it and know about it and they're 30 minutes before we open just like waiting at the doors to get this ammunition you could get on the internet and look at like a million forums that just are dudes discussing like what the best bullet is for killing people wow Oof. it's it's really wow. rough yeah i usually just buy you know plinking ammunition on the internet comes in in a couple weeks and i go shoot so I looked this ammunition up on the internet because I was just curious about it. And yeah, there was just forum after forum of people saying like, oh, well, the ballistics are really interesting or, oh, that bullet's not worth a damn. Like you gotta get this bullet if you actually want to kill somebody. Mm. Mm. The revolver is like an old West gun. It's an older technology and I'll just do a, a full six shots. 
loading it in. Like I said, no safety on this one, so finger always off the trigger until you're ready to shoot. Like, you really have to control this. Yeah. Like, this is no joke. It flies back it into your does. hands. It does. Just owning this gun. If you ever wanted to carry it like some folks do, it's just like, oh, you better train you better know for a long do, time mm -hmm. to handle that. Did you hit anything with this one? I, I, no. I noticed everything was going, I'm aiming, everything is going to the right. People, I mean, carry these in Alaska in case they're attacked by a grizzly, you know. I mean, it's a shotgun. We're going to see what this is all about. I, I expect to kick and stuff. I don't know. I might be good with one shot of the experience and be like, okay, that's cool. Like a really strong guy. Yeah. Punch yeah, in the shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. It's not very pleasant. No, not at all. I'm going to keep this. You keep that one? I'm going to keep this one. That show? You know, you see the shotguns and the double pump. You see the ch -ch -ch -ch, or the people pump the gun and then flip it and shoot it and all this slow motion stuff. Oh man, I, I'm never gonna watch these movies the same. <laughs> um, Does your shoulder hurt? No, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tough. Yeah. This is, wow. Okay. We're on the road back to Albuquerque after shooting some guns. That was a really powerful experience. Like the night before, I'm thinking like, I don't want anything to go wrong. I don't mean, we just have to be safe. And, and having done it, I see how you can be a gun owner and be responsible with it. But I also see how people are easily irresponsible with their weapons. It's so pervasive in our culture, it just, it makes me wonder how how do we take a step back? I'm looking at all those shell casings and everything out there and the fact that that area has been used heavily for quite a while. I'm definitely convinced that we have way too many guns out there. And again, it comes down to the individual, their responsibility, their sanctity of life, not just for others, but their own. Because someone who pulls the trigger, your life is fundamentally changed as much as the people you shoot. I can see how people aren't thinking about that at all. In moments of passion and a gun is involved. That kind of segues into something I wanted to talk about, which was the idea of home defense, not just that there's this nebulous bad guy that's in your house and trying to harm your family or yourself, but say it's just somebody stealing from you, a burglar. I've thought about this many times. What would somebody have to be stealing from me for me to want to kill them? Because I just, I just know that the experience of ending someone's life in that concussive, violent way would just, just about ruin my life. I can imagine in so many ways the finality, the loneliness of being a person who has done that. Uh, straight up, I would sacrifice my gun if it meant keeping guns out of the hands of someone with an unhealthy mentality that was going to shoot people because, you know, in the long run, as it is, I've been struggling for years to determine if owning 
my guns, especially the nine millimeter and stuff that I keep in the house, I've been struggling to decide, does this make me safer? In certain small ways and circumstances, I feel like it does but I kind of err on the side of, no, it doesn't make a difference in my life whatsoever. Many, many thanks to Henry Hutchinson. About 17 years ago, I met J.D. Butter in Los Angeles at an epic house party he was throwing. His parties were, well, legendary just doesn't do them justice. We caught up on Zoom last week after he responded to a Facebook post I made about wanting to talk to gun owners for this episode. In our talk, he told me about his reasoning for owning a gun. A warning for listeners, he shares a story of a sexual assault and a story of suicide. We pick up our conversation in progress. Do you currently own a gun? I do. How long have you owned guns? I am a recent gun owner. Now, it's interesting. So I come from some serious ghetto stock. Like I was born in Detroit in a city called Highland Park, which is kind of like a suburb of Detroit, but it's basically Detroit only worse. Okay. Um, Okay. So I was born there and then I moved when I was five, but every summer I would go for the entire summer and stay with my grandmother in the hood. And you know, my grandmother had like 10 guns in the house and Hmm. would brandish them. My dad was a cop who always carried his gun. Growing up in that environment, I was very kind of afraid of guns because when you're in the hood, it just kind of feels like a gun is just a slippery slope to some some bad stuff happening. Yeah, yeah. So for most, most of my childhood and into my teens, I was not interested in guns, didn't want to be around them or anything like that. When I was about 18, an older friend of mine told me a story that had happened to him at work. He worked in Parks and Rec. And so he'd be working in a park and there'd be his colleague was a woman and they'd close up at whatever, 10 o'clock at night or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he was telling me that one night two guys came in, you know, because they had some cash on hand because they were doing various transactions and stuff like that. came in and and robbed them, but also tied him up and raped his colleague just with him tied up and and watching. Now, at the time, I was living at home with my mom, just me and my mom, in a house on the hill. And literally, that the, the type of resonance that that story had was like, man, dude, like if that ever happened, if someone ever broke into our house and like I had to watch my mom be raped or murdered, I don't know if I would ever forgive myself, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so that was literally the first time I was probably like 18 or 19. That was the first time I really thought about the idea of gun ownership for personal protection, right? Now, would you say you did that because of parts of the story you were telling me about personal protection? I'd gotten rid of my previous gun probably, I don't know, 10 years ago. And for the intervening years, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to get a gun. And, and I've been an advocate of gun ownership, you know, and the cliche I'd always say was like, yeah, if my door handle is jiggling at three in the morning, I don't want to be trying to defend myself with a, a frying pan. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my feeling is, hey, man, the criminals have guns. So I kind of want to at least try to be on a level ish playing field if I need to protect me and mine. Do you know people who have guns? 
I do. I live in LA and I have a lot of liberal friends. So I probably know more people that don't have guns out here. Yeah. Progressives really are on some anti-gun stuff, but based on mass shootings and, you know, the occasional, I mean, I'm going to be frank with you. I have a friend, one of my closest friends, like my college best friend in 2014 killed himself Hmm. with a gun. And I have kind of surmised that probably if he hadn't had access to a gun, he'd still be alive because he would have these moments. You know, if, if you've kind of dealt with depression, you, you have these moments where you dip Yeah. and a gun is accessible. So, you know, it's like, I get that, you know, yeah. um, I get the idea of not wanting to have a gun in the house with children. I totally get it. Mm-hmm. But as a single man, Or, you know, sometimes I'm at my mom's house, which I kind of think of as a nest even more worth protecting than my home. I I see where you're coming from, because particularly with the story about your friend who took his own life, a lot of people, when we think of guns and the gun control issue, they think automatically of mass shootings and not necessarily they don't think too much of children accidentally shooting themselves or people accidentally shooting themselves at home and the rate of guns that are used in assisting suicides. It's part of this like larger public health problem. When you hear of mass shootings, what really goes through your mind when you hear of these? I mean, we've had a string of them so far this year as things are opening back up again. What has been going through your mind as you hear about these? White people. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm absolutely kidding. Although, you know, I mean, statistically speaking, I think there have been two black mass shooters ever the two guys in maryland yeah the snipers yeah the snipers mm-hmm. kind of down that vector i do kind of think we do see some commonality in the type of people who commit mass shooting the profile tends to be white male some sort of history of domestic violence we talked to experts last week who mentioned that particularly with school shooters that's the case and that happens to be the larger profile of mass shooters Right. You know, I always kind of jokingly say, like, man, it's like black people have way more reason to be pissed. Like, hmm. you know what I'm saying? It's like, what, like, but, but it kind of, in a way, speaks to, I think, some of the things we see in society that is, is very difficult for us as African-Americans when we see so much pushback on something like Black Lives Matter or when we see, you know, White Lives Matter. It's like... Duh. Like, if I hear White Lives Matter, it's like the whole society for 450 years has been predicated on how much White Lives Matter. Like, how are you? How is it that you feel disenfranchised? Yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah. The grievance. That walks me down a path towards a type of entitlement that mm-hmm. is a commonly discussed subject matter. Because, it, again, to me, if you can be white in this society and still manage to feel disenfranchised that's problematic you know because we all black white yellow green whatever we all have crosses to bear so some of these things that these shooters are responding to is other people have to deal with too yes yes but somehow their ability to not use it to go out and kill people is, is is not there. So how do you feel about the policies like universal background checks? You're in agreement with that? Oh, like a million percent. 
Yeah. What about banning assault weapons? Yeah. Like, I'm pretty much down with that, too. Again, it's like, what do you need it for? Yeah. By the same token, this is another advocacy I've kind of been saying to a lot of my liberal friends, you know, and I say it with a joking seriousness, let's say. Okay. You know, with everything we've been seeing in society really for the last 450 years, but let's just take last year. Okay. Where we're at in 2020 still, okay? With everything we saw last year with the election and just the, like, I mean, the angry, hateful rhetoric you see from so, so many people in this country. I'm very cynical. So I'm like, dude, this whole earth experiment, I'm not sure it's going to work out in the long term. I don't, I don't know if it's going to be in 50 years or 5,000 years, but something's got to get, whether it's, you know, overpopulation, resource man, whatever whatever the case may be, right? But there's also the social component of this clash that we're still in, dude. We're still still talking about stuff that Malcolm was talking about. We're still talking about stuff that Martin was talking about. Yeah. We're still talking about stuff that Ali was talking about. 50 years down the line, dude. Mm -hmm. You know, so th these are not easy equations to solve, clearly. Okay. Let's make it frank. They were extremist groups uh, who were calling for the start of the Civil War, and it's not like they haven't stopped calling for that. Um, right. I mean, <laughs> the people who bum rushed the Capitol. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, all the people who say n still have a lot of guns. Mm. That's worrisome to me as an African American. What do you see on the horizon when it comes to this talk about gun control and gun safety and mass violence? Quite honestly, I see it like many of the other difficult and nuanced discussions that don't have any easy answers. I think as we kind of see in America that we don't do well with really finding resolution on a lot of those things. It's like we can't even get to the table to have the discussion. I literally did an experiment on my Facebook a few months ago. And the experiment was, I basically asked the question directed at all of my liberal friends. And I wasn't asking because I was expecting an answer. But the question was, as part of a good faith negotiation with the right, can you name like three policies or three kind of political discussions where you might be willing to kind of do some give backs on a given issue in order to engage in a good faith negotiation. Mm -hmm. What I was trying to get liberals to understand is that they're entrenched also. Nah. You know, liberals all talk about how like, oh, they're so entrenched about their guns and this, not, and, and I'm like, okay, but aren't you as equally entrenched with your stuff? And that was what the whole idea of the, of the post was. And as soon as I put it up, you know, you got a bunch of, of liberals going, I'm not negotiating with terrorists. So what, we're just going to be at loggerheads forever? I say that all to say that I don't have much faith that we're going to find any real resolution on the gun issue because everyone's entrenched and unwilling to hear the other side. Yeah. Mr. J.D. Butter, marketing executive, producer, creative, gun owner, and an old friend out of Los Angeles, California. Thank you. Thank you again for talking with me. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, man.
Mental wellness is a big concern for a lot of folks as the pandemic slowly wanes. People went through a lot, and for many, it was a time of distancing and isolation. So if you're hearing these conversations today and feeling sad or angry or alone, there are people you can talk to right away. You can reach out to Agora, which has been helping people for more than 50 years. Agora promises compassionate, non-judgmental help. You can call 505-277-3013. That number again, 505-277-3013. You can also chat with someone online through Agora's website, which we'll link to on the post for this show. This is No More Normal. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We are continuing our look into gun violence in America. Gun violence rates overall rose during the pandemic. Mass shootings are back in a big way as the country reopens. Last week, we heard about some of the common traits of the shooters and gun policies that could radically reduce mass shootings or maybe even end them altogether. Today, we pick it back up. In the next 30 minutes, we talk with a Harvard professor about understanding gun violence as a public health issue and a researcher who studied mass shootings as a contagion. No More Normal is brought to you by Your New Mexico Government, a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage comes from the Kellogg Foundation and KUNM listeners like you. Support for public media provided by the Thornburg Foundation. Hear us each week on KUNM Sundays at 11 a.m. Find past episodes online at KUNM.org or wherever you look for podcasts. The Second Amendment is argued in courts, in legislatures, on cable news, and bars, among other places. While the talking points are familiar, there's a lot of confusion about what the amendment actually means and where it applies. We wanted to find out why. So we hit up Peter Kirst, a constitutional law professor at the University of New Mexico and an expert on the Second Amendment. He begins by explaining how the American public's understanding of the amendment has evolved. Well, the truth is, is there has been over the last 40, 50 years, a fairly concerted effort by the NRA and their allies to create a kind of myth about the Second Amendment, to present it to the public in a way that is not historically or constitutionally grounded and has created a tremendous amount of public misunderstanding and misperception about the Second Amendment. It is probably the most misunderstood of all the provisions of the United States Constitution. In that case, I'll read it off for our listeners. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to bear and keep arms shall not be infringed. There have been so many discussions in court decisions about our right to bear arms. Can you tell me what we're getting wrong and these misconceptions when we discuss this interpretation of the Second Amendment? What most people do is completely ignore the preparatory clause, um, the part at the beginning that says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. It's the only one of the Bill of Rights that has a preparatory clause. That is to say, a clause that explains what right is being protected and why it's being protected. Mm -hmm. But the Second Amendment is specifically and particularly limited to the ability of people to keep and bear arms because a militia is necessary to the security of a free state. The militia just wasn't anybody who happened to have a gun. A militia was a state organization. It was state law created and regulated the militia. Mm -hmm. And Americans of that time in Pelé's considered this the proper way for a free society to defend itself. The bias was against a standing army people whose job it was to be soldiers, mm -hmm. right? They had a deep, abiding, often expressed apprehension about standing armies. They didn't want one. 
They thought they were tools of oppression. They thought they were things governments use to oppress regular folks. I believe it was 1977 from the research that I've done when on the right wing, they began this push to really nullify that preparatory clause, the first part of the Second Amendment. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk to me about that? Like how they took the first part of the Second Amendment, completely nullified it to where all we talk about now in today's dialogue about guns is the second half of the Second Amendment. It's a remarkable transformation. Just to make that part of it clear, the reason the second was put in to the Constitution at all with the prefatory clause was the new Constitution authorized Congress to create an army of the United States, a standing army. Mm -hmm. Basically, George Washington talked them into that. Okay. Because he had fought the revolution with all these state militias, and he said, never again. We need to have a professional army. And they were like, oh, man, we really don't want to do that. Okay. He said, no, 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 we have to. And he was, he was, he was George Washington, and they trust, and said, okay. But what happens if Congress, which under the original Constitution can regulate, train, and arm the state militias, and put it into federal service when they want to. What if Congress uses its power to disarm the state militias, leaving the United States Army the only armed force in the country? Mm -hmm. And it, then it becomes this tool of oppression that we've always been so worried about. Mm -hmm. And so the answer was, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll put into the Bill of Rights that Congress can't disarm the militias. Because a lot of what was put into the Bill of Rights was basically done to assure people that the Congress wouldn't run them up. Okay. You know, you put in a thing, say they won't establish a religion because we didn't want them to do that, right? You put in a thing, they won't suppress free speech because, oh, we really want. So, all right, tell you what, we'll put a thing in there that says they won't disarm the militias. Now, do you feel better? And that was the way it was understood for the first 180 years. And there wasn't much gun control because there wasn't much of a problem. And guns were controlled at the state level. States had rules like you couldn't have a loaded weapon in your house. Mm -hmm. New York, Philadelphia, Boston had rules. You couldn't fire a gun within city limits. As gun violence became more and more of a problem, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Mm -hmm. There were domestic disturbances with a lot of gun violence. And the rate at which Americans were killing each other with guns presented itself to the public mind in the 60s as a serious safety and public health problem. And so Congress started talking about, well, we should do something about it. And people started to say, well, you can't. You know, you can't do anything about it because the Second Amendment won't let you. It's simply not true. Nothing Congress has ever proposed to do about guns has anything to do with the disarming of the militias. But the Second Amendment became the stick that the NRA and others used to sort of hit Congress with, okay. to prevent them from regulating guns in a way that they didn't like. Because in America, if you can say something's unconstitutional, you sort of take it off the table as a policy option, yes. right? Yes. You don't have to argue anymore about whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, will it help, will it hurt, right? If you say it's unconstitutional, well, well that's the end of that. I mean, politically, it was a very astute move to trying to persuade Americans and Congress that Congress, even if you wanted to control guns, you couldn't because it was unconstitutional. You know, in 2008, the Supreme Court overturned this couple hundred years of precedent in the case, the District of Columbia versus Heller, which what I believe, and let me know if I have this right, was all about being able to keep an unregistered handgun in the home. Can you break down the importance of that right. case and its ruling? It's very important. 
DC against Teller was, yeah, about an ordinance in the District of Columbia that basically it made it extremely difficult for an individual to have a handgun in the home. Mm-hmm. You could get one, but you had to jump through a bunch of hoops, and, and it wasn't easy. And, of course, D.C. was responding to a really serious gun violence problem in the community and trying to get its arms around that in some mm-hmm. meaningful way. The Supreme Court held in a 5-4 to four decision, written by Justice Scalia, that the Second Amendment protected the right of a person to own a gun in their home for the purposes of self-defense couple of things about that. One, with all due respect to the late Justice Scalia, who was a very bright guy, Mm -hmm. it is a bad piece of constitutional interpretation. Basically turns the amendment on its head and reads the prefatory clause out of existence. I think it was intellectually dishonest and ignored huge parts of the historical record. And basically what he says is he comes up with an interpretation of the operative clause, the right of the people to keep their arms off infringed, and then tries to come up with a, an interpretation of the prefatory clause that fits that. Okay. That's the opposite of what you're supposed to do. They did it backwards. So in essence, he came up with an answer and then created reasonings that support right. his answer. Came up with an answer and then came up with a reading of the second that, that agreed with his answer. Gotcha. But the other thing about the opinion, as wrongheaded as I think it is, The other thing is the court went out of its way to say, look, we're not talking about anybody owning any weapon that they want for any purpose that they want. There are all kinds of rules about that. Those are all perfectly constitutional. We're talking about the right of an individual to have a, you know, 38 caliber or a 25 millimeter pistol under his pillow so he can shoot the guy who breaks into his house to steal his television set. Again, I disagree entirely with that reading of the second. But they went out of their way to make sure that the opinion was constrained to its facts. Doesn't have anything to do with assault weapons or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. And it doesn't take those policy options off the table. As the politics and politicians change, so do their judicial nominees. Oh, yeah. Can you talk to me about these decisions made by the courts that are subject to political sway? This is why every time my friends of mine say to me, Oh, you know, it doesn't matter who gets elected president, you know, because, uh, you know, Republicans, Democrats are all alike. Hmm. And I used to say, yeah, uh, except they're not. Because the politics really matter. That's why what the NRA has done is so insidious. It isn't just that they influence senators and presidents and representatives. It's that they have, through a very aggressive public education campaign for a generation or so now, persuaded Americans hmm that this is what the second means. Mm-hmm. So that a political figure, candidate, or senator, who says, you know, I think we ought to create these regulations, is attacked not for, this is bad policy, but you are disrespecting the Constitution, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's a poison pill, mm-hmm. you know, because it's hard to win the debate on policy ground where they talk about instead our Second Amendment rights. Yeah, And I always say, Really? You're joining the National Guard? Because the Supreme Court said that who is and who is not in the militia is for the state to decide. All these guys going around in, you know, uh, used camo and carrying AK-47s or, you know, whatever it is that they carry around, calling themselves militias, the people who attacked the Capitol in January. Mm -hmm. These are not militias. The law is plain. The militia is what the state legislature says it is. You don't get to just get yourself together with a bunch of your pals and start calling yourself a militia, right? Okay. The National Guard is the militia. That's it. 
these guys, you know, running around in their dime store camo and, and carrying all these deadly weapons are not malicious. And they are not entitled to any of the protections of the Second Amendment. Professor Peter Kirst with the University of New Mexico, an expert in constitutional law. I feel like we all need to break out our pocket constitutions and do a little bit of studying. I really appreciate you coming onto the show and breaking this down for us. Thank you, Professor Kirst. Anytime at all. Thanks. Harvard professor David Hemingway stresses that we begin to look at gun violence as a public health issue, meaning it's all about prevention, not just treatment. We have fixed other problems by taking this approach. Just look at car safety. Nomono's former associate producer Taylor Velasquez and I spoke with him last week as he explained to us why taking a public health approach to guns is imperative. You know, we just lived through a pandemic, but we're also seeing the country reopen and we're averaging about 10 mass shootings per week in 2021. So what are you thinking about as you're reading these headlines? Yeah, oh, it's just so sad because all these things are preventable. That's often in public health. You have these issues and they are preventable. There's lots of things we know we could do. There's lots more we need to know. And it's just it's just heartrending because I end up talking to and reading about a lot of the victims and the victims' families. You know, one of the things like we did a study and there's no question that there's a strong relationship between the availability of large capacity magazines and how many people will die in mass shootings and how many mass shootings there'll be, whatever limit you put on it. If you don't have large capacity magazines, it's hard to kill nearly as many people. And some states have these laws and do better. Indeed, some states do much better in this area. No states do as well as most of the other developed countries, but some states do much better and some states do much worse. And it really has to do with the ready availability of highly lethal weapons. You've written a book about firearms as a public health issue called Private Guns, Public Health. How does this line of thinking change the conversation? Well, I think the big thing is that public health brings a lot of different things to the table as contrasted, say, the criminal justice One of the big things I think it does, the public health approach is really about figuring out ways to help you stay healthy and figure out ways to prevent you from getting sick or injured. So basically, I would say the one sentence is try to make it really easy to stay healthy and really difficult to get injured in terms of obesity, for example. What you'd want to do in public health is make it really easy to eat healthy foods and get good exercise and make it really difficult to be a couch potato and eat junk foods all the time. And in the United States, we just do the opposite. And so, like, why are people surprised that we have an obesity problem? Mm -hmm. You know, President Biden has issued executive orders in April about guns that can be assembled and also kits to enhance guns, saying that they should be subject to existing laws that require serial numbers, background checks or registrations. What do you make of those orders that the president issued? I think those are good. Again, that this one small step, there's sort of no reason why people should have lethal weapons without background checks. What we should all want is for the people who own guns to be very responsible, to make sure that they're well-trained, that they don't leave their guns around so that the wrong people can have them. There's no question that almost everybody, I think, agrees there are certain people who should not have guns. We just do a terrible job. We make it so Virtually everyone can have guns. A big difference in the United States from all the other developed countries, because they all do better than we do, all much, much better about guns. And some have almost no guns, but some have a fair number of guns. But they typically have not had these culture wars where it's the right versus the left and just talking about 
in Australia. It's been 25 years now since they had this major gun massacre and they changed their laws and it's made an enormous difference. People can still have guns, but it's much harder for the wrong people to get guns. And the reason they were able to do it is because a conservative prime minister finally said enough is enough. That made all the difference. Universal background checks, ban on assault weapons, closing the loophole about buying firearms at a gun show. These measures are always talked about, especially after a mass shooting, but they end up on hold while the shootings continue. Why do you think we struggled to make this happen? First, I would say there's lots of other things we could do. That's one of the things in the public health approach. I'm a researcher. It turns out data and research really matter to help you figure out what's going on and what to do. And we don't have as good a data system as we should have. And for 30 years, we really tried not to fund research. Finally, this is changing a little bit. So there's so many things we don't know. There's the government is a big buyer. The reason we have airbags in cars is government was the first initial buyer of airbags and cars and showed that they could work. So there's lots of things we could do. The big problem in the United States is that these gun issues have become part of our culture wars. And all these things in the culture wars, nothing ever good happens. We just have the two sides yelling at each other. And so one of the things in public health, what we try to do is to not create this division, but to work together, to figure out ways not to say you're the problem, but you're part of the solution. So we've been working with gunners a lot in terms of trying to reduce suicide because most gun deaths are suicide. And the evidence is overwhelming that a gun in the home increases the risk of suicide. So we've been working with gun shops and there's a lot of gun shops now who are trying to figure out what little part they can do to reduce suicide. We've been working with gun trainers. Gun trainers are starting to figure out what part can they do to try to reduce suicide. Sort of it's the same way in the motor vehicle example. It wasn't like one thing or two things or three things that made the difference. Airbags really, really matter, but they only reduce motor vehicle deaths by about 11%. And somehow we reduced it by 85%. Seatbelts really matter. And they maybe reduce deaths by 10 or 15%. But there are all these other things, just inch by inch, There's so many things that can be done, and that's also true about guns. Well, thank you very, very much for talking with us. Hopefully we can talk again, hopefully about a different issue of public health and not this horrific one. (laughs) That'd be good. Or it would be nice to talk about how things are getting better. Bet. That'll be the topic of our next conversation. Hopefully we get to have it soon. He's David Hemingway, Professor of Health and Policy and Director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center. Thanks again, Professor Hemingway. Sure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Are mass shootings contagious? Do reports of mass shootings inspire others to repeat those acts of violence? Our next guest, Sherry Towers, is a researcher whose work examines the rate of mass shootings and American pandemic of gun violence. Again, I was joined by Taylor Velasquez in our conversation. In your study, Contagion in Mass Shootings and School Shootings, you argue that mass shootings have an immediate contagious effect. Like if a mass shooting takes place, it catalyzes ideation and other stressed individuals for them to carry out a similar action. Do I have this right? And can you break it down for us? That's pretty good summary of the wording. Um, We assume that in the model that we use that it's an immediate effect. So essentially within a day that it will increase the probability. And so that's the model that we used. And we found that it fit the data better than a model that didn't include that contagion effect. So as you go forward in time from a mass shooting, the increased probability slowly decays away. 
And so then you go back to your baseline probability because these things aren't all contagious. We found in our study that only 20 to 30% appeared to have been inspired by a previous incident. Hmm. And then the other 70 to 80% were just happening because. Now, is the contagious effect born from the details of the events that get reported? And does that give potential shooters inspiration? What we've seen in the past from what some mass shooters have said or what they've left behind or what their family members said is that some of them were inspired by high profile incidents that had occurred in the past, like, for instance, Newtown or Columbine. The incidents, this contagion effect seems to be nationwide. And so because of that, it does appear that the national news media that covers these things seems to perhaps be playing a role. What steps can the media take as we report on these shootings before setting more of them off? One of the things I always bring up is that there is responsibility in reporting that is used, for instance, for suicides. Um, Most media outlets in cities don't report on suicides because it is well known that suicides are contagious. And so when people read about these things, it ideates them. Even when in high schools, if there's a suicide in the high school, it will often precipitate a suicide cluster, unfortunately, in high school. So we do know that for suicides, at least, that um, responsibility in reporting can help reduce suicides in a city. So now the question is, would this be the case for mass shootings as well? And because we've never had a point in time where all the media outlets weren't publishing these details, we have no data points to actually measure whether or not it would be effective. You're kind of referring to the if it bleeds, it leads phenomenon within our news. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I've had many, I've given literally over a couple hundred interviews on this analysis. And I've had many reporters tell me that by far, like not even close, the number of hits that they get on online stories are related to mass shooting stories. So it's steps that the media has to take in order to really recognize they have a little bit of culpability or responsibility in the reporting of such incidents. Well, I don't know if you, I, I would go so far to say it's culpability because that would, that would kind of lay the blame at their feet. So I think that rather than blaming the media, what we should be doing as a society is taking an introspective look at why we have this lurid fascination with these kinds of incidents where we go out and seek information far beyond what we really need to know. And I think that it's not the media that's to blame. It's the public that is paying the media to do this. We're seeing a lot more headlines about these mass shootings again. And what's on your mind in this moment? And what are the similarities or even the differences between these shootings? There are many kinds of mass shootings that rarely make the national news. There's mass shootings, for example, that are gang related, that are related with people getting drunk and shooting up a bar. Family related ones are fairly common. And so I think that the U.S. public is actually largely unaware of how common mass shootings are. They are really common. My personal opinion is that when it comes to changes in gun laws, when it comes to societal change coming from legislative efforts to try to curb these kinds of things, whether it's gun control control or other kinds of laws. It is the stranger on stranger mass shootings that are almost 
certainly the ones that are most likely to have the public writing their congressperson to say we need to do something about this. How could gun laws potentially affect mass shootings and even gun violence? Well, the problem is, is that the U.S., there is more than one firearm for every man, woman, and child in the U.S. I don't know if you know that, but the number of firearms exceeds the population. And so you already have all those firearms out there. What measurable impact might come out of imposing, say, Canadian-style gun laws or Australian-style gun laws? The answer is probably not a lot because there's just so many firearms out there and there's so many firearms. You know, the black market is awash with firearms as well. It's so easy to get it, even if they were to try to put these hoops into place. What laws may be effective are these red flag laws that temporarily remove firearms from people who have been flagged by family members as being at high risk of hurting themselves or others. And those may actually be effective if the loopholes are closed up. I think that most reasonable firearm owners would agree that someone who is showing signs of mental illness or other issues that really is educated to be a risk to themselves and others shouldn't really have a firearm, at least temporarily. You mentioned the differences from these random shootings where the shooter is unknown to people in the mall and these mass shootings that occur, such as gang gang shootings that occur. Does that inhibit our ability to understand the full scope of the problem? Because the media and the public tend to focus on these more sensationalized type of shootings that happen. I think what makes the stranger and stranger mass shootings more compelling to people is that that is something they could potentially see as their problem. Most of the public is not going to see gang violence as their problem because they're not in a gang. They're not likely to be a target of gang violence, especially if they're not living in in a gang area. You know, they may think that that is a shame. Yeah. So like not until it reaches somebody's front lawn, until it affects their child at school or happens at the neighborhood grocery store. Right. And going along with the school shooting, we spoke with an expert who advises against lockdown drills for active shooters. She says it's almost like a map or training for these potential perpetrators. Do you agree with what she's saying? I know that both of my children have been traumatized by lockdown drills. To be honest, I and other parents actually as well at school were left wondering whether it was worth it. And there actually was an incident where there was a man who was walking through, not completely adjacent to the school, I guess it was like the next year, there was a man who was walking through with an AR-15. We don't even know why. Um, It's like several blocks from the school. And so they locked down the school for real that time and nothing happened. My kids found that really traumatizing. Both both the lockdown drills and the actual lockdown really traumatizing. The best laid plans for these kinds of things. I mean, it might be worth it to actually train the teachers as to what to do with the kids, but I do know that there was a seismic shift in policing after the Columbine incident related to school shootings. Up until the Columbine shooting, the police would show up on scene and wait to determine, try to get a sense of what was going on inside before they were they would go inside and they try to engage the shooters or try to take control of the situation. When they dissected what happened in Columbine, 
what they decided to do was change tactics dramatically. The suggested policy now is that they enter the building and try to immediately engage the perpetrator because the law enforcement are trained to how to respond and they're armed when someone is shooting at them. The kids are not. The teachers are not. It concentrates the attention of the perpetrator on somebody who's trained to be able to deal with that. As I woke up, I read this story about a school shooting in Russia. From what I got from the reporting, it states that the shooter is 19 years old. They attended the school previously. They only recently received a license for firearms and that they posted their plans on social media. According to your research, does that fit any description of the profile of an American school shooter? School shooting incidents, no matter where they happen, often have similarities. Kids having a grievance kids perhaps posting about that grievance on social media. This is not atypical for a school shooting and it's certainly not atypical of different various types of mass shooters, actually, not just school shooters. It's not surprising that there are similarities. Sherry Towers is the founder and owner of Towers Consulting LLC. She's also a data scientist who studies the contagion effect of mass shootings, among other topics. Thank you very much for talking with us and sharing your expertise. Really appreciate it. Thank you for the interest in my research. Today on the show, as we talk about gun violence, we're also hearing about suicide and mental wellness. If these conversations bring up heavy feelings for you, New Mexico does have resources that are easy to access right now. Call 1-855-NM-CRISIS if you need to talk to someone right now. It's toll free, it's available 24 seven, and people are there waiting to hear from you. That's 1-855-NM-CRISIS. If you're not in crisis, but just need to talk to someone, maybe someone you don't know personally, There's a peer-to-peer warm line. It's open from 3.30 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. You can also text them from 6 p.m. to 11 p.m. The warm line is 1-855-4NM-7100. That's 1-855-4NM-7100. We'll have these phone numbers on the post for this show, too, online at KUNM.org. 2020 was a whirlwind of a year. Each piece of information was a matter of life or death for some. News was breaking every minute, and each story seemed more disastrous than the last. Plenty of people had to stop consuming the news for their mental wellness. What was it like to report the news? What was it like to examine the effects of the pandemic while trying to survive a pandemic? I'll say this, I got about five years worth of job experience in 2020, believe that. What was it like to be a journalist in 2020? Next week on No More Normal. You can find part one of our episodes on gun violence online at KUNM.org or anywhere, anywhere, anywhere you look for podcasts. Just look for No More Normal. Thanks to Kaveh Mobahead for the editing help. Thanks to Henry Hutchinson for taking us out to practice shooting. As always, we want to thank our guests for offering their experiences, insights, and expertise. Thanks to Jastone, the producer, Cheo, Dom Life, Business School, Sundog, and Olaud Records for providing music to the show. Kaki, Pope Yes Yes Y'all, and Bigawat produced some of the show's themes. Special thanks to recent UNM graduate Taylor Velasquez for her contributions. No More Normal is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco. It is produced and hosted by yours truly. I'm Khalil Ekelona. For everyone here at No More Normal, thanks for listening.